so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. So far away. See, I went to that Nickelback song. Da, na, 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 na. Not that song. What is Nickelback? There's a, there's a Nickelback song. <laughs> Look at this photograph. No, but it's about far away. I can't <laughs> oh, remember that. Am That's I? That's a Nickelback song? I think so. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and for two weeks in a row, people, we are back in the studio, the real life studio with my incredible colleagues, Lindsay Nicolay. Good morning, afternoon, evening, or whatever time you're listening to the podcast. Uh, The antics are already starting here in the podcast studio as Brent is messing with my section of the notes. Just making some last-minute helpful edits. back off, Brent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's good to be with you. And Brent, I guess you're already in here, but just say hello. Here I am. We've had two days in the last week of 90-degree weathers. It's been excellent. Oh, you are crazy. I was talking to someone this morning, and I pulled up uh, what the weather was. We had 98% humidity here in Nashville. And my, you know, oft-repeated phrase that I love to go to, I enjoy seeing the air that I'm breathing. That's right. Well, I'll just tell you, I felt every single percent of that 98% humidity. Listen, the only good thing about that is that it's good for your skin and helps prevent wrinkles. There you go. Which I'm See, look, sure both of y'all are concerned about. This podcast is already improving people's <laughs> lives. So in the interest of uh, stimulating their minds, Lindsay, why don't you tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week? Well, hello again, everybody. This week, I wanted to start off highlighting once again something from our interview series because it has just been such a rich and great series. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, And it's so important for us to be aware of the new resources that are coming out, books that are coming out. There are, we just live in such an amazing time when we can have access to all of these books about so many important issues and how to think Christianly about them. So, this interview is by Jordan Wooten. And it's titled, What is Religious Liberty and Why is it Important? An interview with Andrew Walker on Liberty for All. If you've listened to the podcast or paid attention to the ERLC for a while, you know that Andrew Walker used to be our colleague, uh, and he has written a new book, and a really accessible book, about religious liberty. And you probably— You hear a lot of talk about this in the news. You see a lot of uh, resources about this here at the ERLC, but you might be wondering why. Why do we talk about religious liberty? Why is it important? How should I think about it? How can I understand it? And that's why uh, I think it's important that you check out this interview. So starting this out, Jordan says, in America, religious liberty is often called our first freedom, yet religious liberty today seems to be under constant threat. But why? He asks Andrew a series of questions. So if that 
question really causes you to think and to wonder and to want to know the answer, I would encourage you uh, to go to our site and check out this interview for some of those answers. Next up is an article that I really loved, and I was so glad that this gentleman wrote it. His name is Stephen Johnson, and it's titled, Why I'm Thankful I Grew Up in an Elderly Church, Three Ways Older Saints Cared for Me. We don't see a lot of articles like this uh, today, and Stephen even points out, the author of this piece points out, it's because in our churches, there seems to be an idolatry of youth. And while we know that youth is good in the hands of the Lord, First Timothy even tells us that, we also know that that older saints are necessary uh, to disciple us in wisdom. And so he has listed three ways that the elderly in his father's congregations over the years cared for him. And those are, they shared their rich wisdom, they taught him how to pray, and they never seemed too busy to care for him. If you read this article, it will just move your heart to reach out to those individuals in your life who would fall into the category of older saints, maybe grandparents, maybe a mentor, maybe a neighbor, um, fellow members at church. Reach out to them and just tell them thank you. Or if you haven't sat down and talked with them, grabbed coffee with them, had lunch with them, ask them to do that. They, I'm sure, would be eager to pour into your life. They are a rich, rich blessing to our churches, and we need to treat them with the value and the dignity that they are worthy of. And then finally, we have an article by our friend Catherine Parks, and it's titled, What We Need Most for Hard Choices in Parenting, Smartphones, Sports, and Wisdom. So if you combine parenting, smartphones, and sports, and you talk about those things in a public forum or even among your friends, you're bound to run into some controversy. And Catherine initially started this article out by posting on Facebook about some difficult decisions that they are facing regarding giving their children smartphones. What should they do regarding traveling sports? How should their kids be involved? Because they see the value of being involved in competition for forming their character. So she started talking about this on Facebook and got lots of comments and realized that this resonated with a lot of her friends, in particular her Christian friends. They're thinking how to be intentional as parents, how to walk in wisdom, how to shepherd their children in the midst of these various areas of peer pressure. What does it look like to think Christianly about these things and to be a distinctly Christian family? And of course, we know that many of us will land in different places. There's no one way or one answer. But what Catherine urges us to do most of all is, number one, go to the Lord in prayer. And number two, in the midst of that prayer, to ask the Lord for wisdom, because he tells us that he will give it generously to those of us who ask. She talks about details about smartphones and statistics. She talks about sports and the value of those within this article. But the heart of the article and what we want you to take away from this is while we need to exercise charity with one another in our decisions, first and foremost, we need to seek the Lord because we are desperate for His wisdom in parenting in a day and age as complex as ours. Lindsay, that was a really good uh, representation there, just of the different things we do in our work day to day. I mean, we talked about parenting, you talked about uh, the church, and you talked about religious liberty. And so uh, I would just say, uh, again, you really did a good job commending it. But Andrew's, uh, this interview and his book, Liberty for All, uh, is helping to explain what religious liberty is and why it matters. Because as Baptists, we know that like religious liberty is a Baptist distinctive. It is one of those things that that is a defining feature of 
our faith in practice. And so it, if you if you ask questions, uh, if you find yourself asking, like, why is religious liberty important? Or why would Christians defend the religious rights of others when we don't think that their beliefs are true or that they don't lead to heaven or they don't they don't lead to Christ? Uh, there, there actually is a really compelling answer to that. And so some of that is found right there in that interview. So I would encourage people to check that out. And that is such a helpful reminder because we see so many voices out there, uh, folks who who say that they are Baptist, and yet when it comes to religious liberty, they have a very narrow definition of religious liberty, which is essentially uh, becoming this kind of weaponized version of politics, as opposed to actually providing a voice for a broad spectrum of folks when it comes to uh, their religious liberty rights, both the ones that we have here domestically uh, with the First Amendment, but then globally, trying to speak out for for those folks uh, who want to practice their religion. And, and I think, you know, Josh, a lot of folks might hear that and say, well, okay, I guess, you know, I, I could see both sides of it, but why is it important uh, for me as a Baptist to use my voice or even my platform uh, to speak up for the religious liberty rights of somebody who's not even in my faith. Right, right. I think that is a question that we would ask. And so, first of all, I would just say, recognize that these rights are reciprocal. So, the fact that we enjoy these rights and others don't means that one day we might not enjoy them. So we want to promote the rights of all people. We want to defend particularly the religious liberty of everyone because we want to have and preserve for ourselves the right to practice our our faith. And then if you look at history, uh, it, just in this country, Baptists used to be jailed, beaten, whipped, put in stocks just because they practiced a faith that, that wasn't considered by the state to be acceptable or a form of religion that was considered uh, unacceptable. None of us want to go back there, and we don't want others to experience that either. So that's that's why this is so fundamental and important. It's a part of our own story. Right, and that's what I love about this piece is, is you read through this interview with Andrew, and hopefully it will resonate with you as a Baptist or an evangelical about why we need to have a broad uh, belief and application of uh, religious liberty. Two things uh, from the other articles that you surfaced here, Lindsay. So in Stephen's piece, I love the second bullet point that he makes about uh, listening to older saints uh, in the faith because they taught him how to pray. And it wasn't so much as like the structure of a personal prayer, but just the habit of prayer. I mean, that is that is certainly something, man, I, I could have used uh, early on in my It still could. Uh, and and look to uh, folks who have uh, walked for a longer time with Jesus um, and and want to learn and pick up their best habits. So I, I love that he included that in there. Uh, and then the piece that that Catherine Parks wrote, uh, particularly about sports. I mean that that resonated with me because we have begun that season of life uh, with our three children, and the temptation there to um, just like go all in. Uh, for your child's athletic endeavor. And, you know, what What I love about this piece is that it it shows, I mean, she, she cites statistics in there that show just how many families are uh, making an idol out of this, this pursuit. And look, it, I get, I was just telling somebody this morning, I got so much enjoyment uh, coaching my son's uh, six and under coach pitch team. And 
but that said, like I still carved out very hard and fast lines. Like we would not play on Sunday, and there were we had <laughs> we had multiple rainouts. As a matter of fact, we ended up not playing a couple games because I told the league, "Hey, we are not doing Sundays. We're we're not going to do that." And that's going to kind of be, I mean, my wife and I have already talked about it. Like, that's going to be a hard and fast rule for us. And I know already that that means whether it's my son or or two daughters, there are going to be athletic opportunities that we end up missing out on uh, because we're saying, hey, no, that is the Lord's Day. We will go to church. And then afterwards, we're going to spend the day as a family. And we're not going to do these other pursuits. And um, I just know that 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 temptation is only going to grow as they get older and uh, the opportunities uh, are, are only gonna are only gonna grow. But uh, I just I just like how Catherine reminds us, hey, like keep the main thing the main thing here. Well, thank y'all for y'all's comments and um, clarifications on these pieces. And it strikes me that all three of these pieces, what they have in common, is their focus on our priorities as Christians. Our priorities: religious liberty, being able to be free to practice your faith in good conscience in our country. Um, The priority of diversity, all kinds of diversity within the church and of human dignity, of esteeming people's value and worth. And then the priority of family, if God uh, grants you a family and living as a distinctly Christian family as shining lights as salt and light in the midst of this generation so that we can glorify our Lord. And it's our privilege to be able to publish these articles in order to help you as listeners, in order to help the church be educated and equipped so that we can walk faithfully with the Lord in this present age. Well, I'd say that's a pretty good week on ERLC.com, and I'm glad to see that those are the kinds of things that we are dealing with, which is the stuff that, that Christians deal with every day uh, as they are trying to live their lives, as they as they attend their churches, as they are parenting their children, and honestly, as we are practicing our faith. I mean, all of that stuff is relevant to what you just said. And so, Lindsay, that was super, super helpful. Brent, that takes us to the culture rundown, so tell us what's going on in the world. All right, so we begin this week on the COVID front, and this story comes to us from Axios, which reports that President Biden announced Wednesday he has asked the U.S. intelligence community to redouble their efforts to investigate the origins of the coronavirus and provide a report within 90 days that could, quote, bring us closer to a definitive conclusion. The debate over the origins of COVID-19 has been reinvigorated in recent days by previously undisclosed U.S. intelligence, first reported by the Wall Street Journal that three researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology fell ill enough to be hospitalized in November of 2019. Biden said in a statement that the U.S. intelligence community had coalesced around two likely scenarios for the origins of the virus. One, that it emerged from human contact with an infected animal, and two, that it was the result of an accidental laboratory leak. Folks have been very curious about the origins of COVID-19, and this action will hopefully get us to a place of more certainty. You know, I'm reminded of uh, back in January of of 2020, uh, the U.S. Senator from Arkansas, Tom Cotton, um, in a hearing, was actually talking about the fact that the, I think it's the province in in China, province of Wuhan, has some of these centers that that study uh, various bio kind of diseases and whatnot. Yeah, it was like a mega lab or something. Yeah, and um, 
And he was floating out the possibility that this was this was something that was actually human uh, created. And um, you know, so it, it's it's certainly been around as as long as we've been dealing with COVID. But uh, obviously, if this was something uh, that that was created by human hands, and and now we have you know the the global death toll and and certainly the the death toll here in America that we have uh, that's that's going to raise a lot of questions internationally yeah it's a i mean honestly it's a huge deal and i kind of have a couple different thoughts on this so one like what happens if it's true like what if this was intentionally manufactured and then whether or not it was intentionally released but it was intentionally manufactured and has uh, affected literally the entire world what should happen well my own personal opinion no one's asking uh the consequences should be devastating. I mean, this shut down the globe and killed millions of people. There's not even a good way to quantify that. So it should be absolutely devastating. The other thing, look, we've talked a lot. We've harped a lot uh, on conspiracy theories as an organization. We've talked about them on our podcast. And like, you know, anybody who knows me personally knows, like I'm very like anti-conspiracy theory. Having said that, I can understand the frustration. I mean, this this story was like surface. People were asking these questions, and then we saw major media really just shout it down and say, "I mean, I, I read a headline yesterday that was like uh, Tom, Tom Cotton thinks that this uh, virus originated in a lab." Here's why he's almost certainly wrong. Like that that was out there, and it's going to frustrate a lot of people. Uh, it's going to lead to even like, if if this turns out to be credible or true, or even if even if uh, this should have been taken seriously far before, you know, lo- long ago. And it wasn't. Uh, this is one of the reasons that people feel that kind of frustration that tend that that makes them doubt when they are being told something by the government or the media. Well, I also think it highlights the fact that we live in an instant gratification society, and uh, we're used to having answers right away. And sometimes things take a while to sort out. So when you're dealing with a virus like COVID nineteen in real time, you're going to have information that comes out that uh, seems to waffle a little bit until we finally figure things out. So that's part of it. It is it is frustrating, but we're dealing with something faster than they have probably in history. And it just takes time. We've only been dealing with this for a year, really. And the fact that we know what we know, uh, that we have a vaccine, that we've been able to step into action so fast is a good thing. But there is going to be competing information out there until time and investigation passes. So I'm not taking any one side. I'm just saying it reminds me that we cannot be instantly satisfied with our information yet in this day and age. It, things Sometimes things just take time. Right. And we also have to understand, right, it, it's it's not like this is happening in a open democratic society. It's happening in China. Right. Uh, right. Which uh, if you talk about if if there is a a country in the world that um, prioritizes closing off avenues of information, uh, making things secret and disappearing folks who may know information like it is China. Uh, and, and so uh, it, it, I think your words right there, Lindsay, were very wise. It's it's going to take a while uh, for us to even, and we may not know anything definitively at the end of the day, um, and 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 so we just have to realize that as uh, we continue on this journey with COVID. So, speaking of disappearing uh, people uh, overseas, the country of Belarus has come under intense scrutiny after one of its fighter jets intercepted a commercial air flight. 
NBC News reports this about the individual in question. He was virtually unknown outside of Belarus until the commercial Ryanair plane on which he was a passenger was abruptly diverted by a fighter jet and forced to land in the country's capital of Minsk on Sunday. Now, Roman Protasevich has made headlines around the world and put the spotlight firmly back on the Eastern European country, where anti-government demonstrations routinely took place after August's disputed presidential election before they fizzled out late last year. Protasevich, 26, was already an important figure to millions in Belarus, having served as editor-in-chief of an anti-government channel. So what happened was a, a jet was scrambled to ground the plane. Uh, they said, authorities in Belarus said that uh, a bomb was reportedly on board, mm-hmm. And they've even gone back and said, oh, it, it, the flight path took it uh, too close to a, a nuclear plant. And uh, But ostensibly, this was the excuse to ground the plane and arrest Protasevich. The condemnation of Belarus's decision to ground the plane and arrest the, the pair, so Protasevich and his girlfriend, they, they both were arrested, was swift. President Joe Biden called the incident outrageous in a statement on Monday, when Britain, the European Union, NATO, and the United Nations also lined up to call out the action in the skies. Uh, I saw um, uh, a couple of headlines that suggested this was a state-sponsored hijacking. And I mean, look, if, uh, if you're on a commercial flight, you know, you're flying Southwest, I should say, and all of a sudden a fighter jet forces your plane to land, uh, that is some pretty unsettling stuff right there. Yeah, I mean, not not to mention, you know, we live in the United States where we enjoy the protection of our civil liberties and our government doesn't uh, routinely disappear people because people would ask questions and there would be, you know, repercussions. Well, this is straight up a dictator. I mean, this is this is an authoritarian regime who th- this airliner, by the way, I think was an Irish like company or originated in right. Ireland. Mm-hmm. And so it was not even though they were taking control of something that originated in their own country. This was totally an international incident where they scrambled their uh, fighter jet to to land this plane to essentially, uh, as far as we can tell, disappear a blogger, like somebody who just took to the internet that was writing uh, stories that their government uh, did not you know, appreciate, obviously, and then has decided to take this uh, unbelievably hostile action. And yeah, I mean, it is, it's terrible for this individual. And it says, I mean, it's, it's frightening for the international order. And, and folks should know for uh, greater context, I even think we talked about this uh, last fall, uh, Belarus is considered to be Europe's last dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the leader there has a stranglehold, uh, on the country's government. And, um, you know, this is a, this is a human rights violation that is consistent with a dictatorship. And I think a lot of times we we assume that there are not even countries like that in the world, but we just talked about uh, the CCP in China. We talked about, we see this here in Belarus. We know about the authoritarian regime in Russia, uh, not to mention North Korea or uh, Iran. Like there are still many, many places in the world where people's basic rights and liberties are not protected and where governments are fundamentally tyrannical. All right, so here at home... There's some more encouraging news. There is pro-life news out of Lebanon, Ohio. The City Council of Lebanon, Ohio has approved an ordinance that makes Lebanon the 29th U.S. city and the first city in Ohio to become a sanctuary city for the unborn. The ordinance, sponsored by six of the council members, passed unanimously after Council Member Krista Wyatt resigned her seat due to her objection to the ordinance. 
it will take effect immediately. We hope to be the first in Ohio and then believe other cities could take our lead as well, said Councilmember Adam Matthews ahead of the vote. So this is just a, a really interesting and intriguing move by a local municipality. I mean, obviously, we have seen efforts at the legislative level uh, in various states, and and obviously uh, efforts continue uh, at the federal level in Washington uh, to to make the country or make their states uh, more pro-life. This one's fairly intriguing because it's happening at at the city level. So I have a question for those who might not understand how legislation works, which includes moi. Uh, so this takes, you said this takes effect immediately. Will this be likely to come up against opposition? Meaning, can it be taken to another court or state court or something like that? Or or it just goes into effect and that's the end of that? Yeah, no, I mean, I would be surprised as, if as we are recording this, there's not a lawsuit being filed to uh, challenge this. Uh, because, I mean, for starters, uh, in the findings of the actual ordinance, it says human life begins at conception. Okay, we're well, right there. There's there's probably a legal challenge. Uh, number three, unborn human beings are entitled to the full and equal protection of the laws that prohibit violence against other human beings. So, I mean, <laughs> equal protection is being cited right there, right? So you got a 14th Amendment. I mean, there there's clearly going to be uh, litigation uh, here, but uh, I think it's great uh, because th- we need to force the courts here to recognize the the dignity of uh, of those preborn lives. Another question as we look ahead to Roe 50, so the 50th anniversary of the passing of Roe v. Wade, which legalized abortion uh, in our country, is this type of legislation what would need to happen to be able to protect preborn lives? Meaning, I have heard. Y'all say to me, just in conversations we've had, Roe v. Wade um, no longer being the law of the land would mean a significant reduction in abortions, but it wouldn't mean no abortions. So is this the type of legislation we would need to be seeing? Yeah, that's definitely right. So if Roe were to fall, um, and when we talk about Roe, we always want to let people know there have been subsequent Supreme Court cases that have kind of bolstered uh, Roe, uh, namely uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And if we were to see those decisions be overturned, uh, what would happen is that it would not make abortion illegal nationwide. Instead, it would take the answer to the question of abortion down to the state level from the federal level, and then it would be a state-by-state thing. Well, there are, I think, uh, at the moment, a 20 three states that already have uh, laws on the books that would make abortion illegal in those states should that happen at the Supreme Court. And then there are all kinds of subsequent um, restrictions on abortion in the other states. And, and more liberal uh, states have you know the broadest possible protections uh, for abortion. And so it, it would be litigated like that. But to answer your question, yes, like these kinds of laws uh, would be most effective should, should Roe be overturned. Elsewhere in some news that you may have missed this week from the New York Times. So folks may remember us talking about William Shakespeare last fall. Well, William Shakespeare, the man with the famous name who inspired headline writers across Britain last year when he became the second person in the country to receive a coronavirus vaccine, he's died after suffering a stroke, his family said in a statement. He was 81. Uh, In that statement, uh, released through the hospital where Mr. Shakespeare was vaccinated, his wife of 53 years, Joy, 
said he had been grateful for becoming one of the first people to be vaccinated against the coronavirus. Quote, it was something he was hugely proud of. He loved seeing the media coverage and the positive difference he was able to make to the lives of so many. He often talked to people about it and would always encourage everyone to get their vaccine whenever he could. So, hey, that's a good testimonial for old William Shakespeare. Oh, William Shakespeare, man. That guy was inspirational, honestly. I mean, he had a famous name, and he was just seemed to be a a really great guy. I mean, it was a, it was a great moment that uh, the internet didn't ruin. That's right. At least not yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> oh man. And uh, here at home, another beloved figure has died, uh, and this one is an author in our times, un- unlike yeah the aforementioned William Shakespeare. Eric Carle, the beloved children's author and illustrator whose classic, The Very Hungry Caterpillar, that's a huge favorite in the Leatherwood home, as an aside, and other works gave millions of kids some of their earliest and most cherished literary memories, has died at the age of 91. Carle's family said he died Sunday at his summer studio in Northampton, Massachusetts, with family members at his side. Through books like Brown Bear, Brown Bear, What Do You See? and Do You Want to Be My Friend? And from head to toe, Carl introduced universal themes and simple words and bright colors. The unknown often brings fear with it, he once observed. In my books, I try to counteract this fear to replace it with a positive message. I believe that children are naturally creative and eager to learn. I want to show them that learning is really both fascinating and fun. We have a book that we've started reading in our home called I Love Dad, well, titled I Love Dad, and it's an Eric Carl book features the very hungry caterpillar and it's fun to watch my daughter just start to develop a love of reading. She's when she's supposed to be in her room taking a nap, I watch her. She looks like Dash from The Incredibles on the camera and like runs back and forth and goes to her her uh, bookshelf and grabs some books and brings them back up into her bed and reads them. So I'm thankful for people like Eric Carl, these authors that help unlock a world of imagination, of creativity and of fun. Uh, for our children to help instill in them a love for books. All right. Well, from hungry caterpillars to cicadas that make you hungry, (laughs) I think that's a good segue. So, Lindsay and Josh, what actually would it take to make you consume a cicada? I got your answer. It's um, something north of about $5,000. Okay. All right. So, you do have a price. Tax-free. You do have a price. Sure. No yeah. taxes. Well, so uh, this one stuck out this week. The Washington Post has a uh, a guide to uh, the preparation and uh, consumption of cicadas. So uh, for all of our listeners who are along the East Coast. Uh, the Brood X pathway. Brood X, that's right. They are they are out and about, and they are probably very plentiful uh, in, in neighborhoods around you. And so the Washington Post thought this was a great way to uh, help their readers. So insect eating, also known as entomophagy, I think that sounds right, is not common in the United States where prevalent cultural norms include a disgust factor, as we have uh, displayed here. But since a 2013 report from the United Nations, advocates here have promoted insects as a sustainable protein source, leading to a wave of high-tech bug powders and snacks over the past few years. And cicadas are eaten in many other cultures. 
They have also historically been a food source for some Native American tribes. So yeah, so this uh, this little guide has all sorts of recipes and suggestions for cooking them up. And uh, I read somewhere that someone suggested that cicadas are the natural shrimp of the land as they proceeded to make a cicada taco. Can we just talk about how gross that is? Like, that's that is just so gross. gross. And <laughs> strong, strong opinion coming in. Like, don't eat bugs. Yeah. And don't don't make me <laughs> feel more. bad for not wanting yes. to eat bugs. Although watching The Lion King as a little girl always made it look appealing to eat bugs. When Timon and Puma ate the bugs. The Do you remember that? Yeah, they opened up. They the looked good. Yeah. But I don't want to eat they them. They were kind of fat and juicy. I was more into um, like the Jungle Book's bare necessities. <laughs> like I thought maybe eating fruits would be great. <laughs> yeah, well that it eating fruit is great there actually. That's not false news, fake news. Yeah, but don't again. Don't don't make me feel bad for not wanting to. Oh eat yeah, bugs. no way. Mm-mm. I mean, you know what I'm grateful for? We are not in the pathway. We are, you know. Yeah, but we have the annual cicadas sure. that are coming at the end of August, and they annoy me a lot. But yeah, I man, love, I love that sound. That's just summer for me. Baseball cicadas. All right. So, anyways, <laughs> Lindsay and Josh, that's your look at this week in culture. So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things we've been talking about with one another. It's really cool because we're actually, as soon as we wrap this podcast, going to go to a real-life lunchroom and talk to each other. But, Lindsay, give us a preview. What's on your mind? Yeah, I am so excited about that, by the way. Uh, So, listen, I'm kind of tired of talking about COVID-19 and and, uh, all that goes along with it. Although I do recognize many other people wish they didn't have to talk about it though they're, they have to because their lives were radically affected by it. There's this person I like to follow and some of my other friends share on Facebook. And I know there's no controversy on Facebook, right? Said sarcastically. But it's titled, uh, well, she's called Your Local Epidemiologist. So just type that into Facebook and you can find her. And she's a doctor with an MPH, which I don't know what that means, and a PhD in epidemiology and biostatistics. So she helps to cipher through a lot of this information and and misinformation about COVID and the vaccine. So for instance, the latest thing that I saw come up uh, was her talking about this outbreak among the Yankees of vaccinated people, an outbreak of COVID. And so she breaks that down and she helps you to think wisely about it and to not lose your cool about it and to not get your information from people who are not experts in these fields, who are armchair experts, so to speak. So I always find her very interesting and I'm thankful for healthcare professionals like this. And I'm thankful that because of healthcare professionals like her, I get to go to lunch with my friends and not wear a mask. Lindsay, um, real-time fact check for you, MPH, Master in Public Health. Oh, good to know. Yeah, Thank so you. that's what that's what you want from a doctor giving mm-hmm. you all kinds of advice about how to navigate a life out of a pandemic. Right. So for mine this week, two things. So one, uh, I think that if you listen to the podcast last week, you know, man, we could just use some levity in our lives around here and we just want to laugh about some stuff. So uh, first thing coming at you is just a tweet that I read and it's hilarious. So... Uh, this person tweeted, I'm still on next door for a neighborhood I moved away from eight years ago. And let me tell you, Doreen is still added about those trash cans. The reason that's so funny to me is literally, I mean, first of all, I think a lot of our listeners will have had similar experiences. Uh, maybe hopefully you're not Doreen. Um, 
at the same time, in my in my own like neighborhood, we just had this big, massive like on our neighborhood Facebook group. People are just losing their minds about people parking their cars on the street where you're totally allowed to park your car because it's a public road. But anyway, it was just it was just a lot, and so I think stuff like that is funny. So you know, wanted to share that with you. The next thing, uh, which is way more depressing, is. So I'm, I'm a, my undergrad was at Liberty University and am a, you know, I had a great experience there and I have very, very like fond memories of LU. Uh, they've gone through some really hard times over the past couple of years. And there's this podcast that is kind of taking a look at some of the real, uh, some of the dark side of, of the stuff that has happened. And it's a, it's an ongoing podcast called Gangster Capitalism. And season three is focused on Jerry Falwell Jr. and Liberty University. And what I'll tell you as a Christian, as a Liberty grad, is like, man, the stuff in there is dark. And the language is bad. The content is bad. But it is largely, I mean, it's, it's trying to tell a true story. And so I'm not necessarily uh, recommending it to you, or at least I'm recommending it with a huge, uh, you know, personal advisory. But... For, for a lot of people who uh, I know and, and Christians who want to know uh, more about that story, about what really happened, and honestly, just to see the perils of where money, power, fame, success, uh, where that can lead a, a Christian into um, places that you probably never thought you would go or want to go, it is a huge cautionary tale. And so I uh, just share that as something I'm listening to you right now. And it is, uh, it's making me sad. It's causing me to spend time in prayer because e- even right now, I mean, Liberty is still looking for the next president and, and trying to chart a course for a much better direction. And so uh, I have found that podcast to be uh, informative, if not really sad. Is the, is the language harsh because it, it gets into detail uh, about the things that, that, that Falwell did? Or, gets, or is it just because that's the way the hosts uh, the, the, the host in my observation, I would say he's probably definitely not a Christian. Uh, so there's some on that side, but honestly, just the actual details gotcha. of what happened yeah. so, are just so sorted and dark. And so don't listen to it with little ears. I would around. not listen to it with yeah. your kids around. Yeah. Okay. This gotcha. Is a, this is a ear, AirPods, uh, or headphones kind of podcast. Gotcha. gotcha. All right. And, uh, to conclude our lunchroom is, is something that I'm just, I'm really excited about. So um, our listeners may realize or may remember uh, that prior to come working at the URLC, coming to work at the URLC, I, I worked in um, the political world and especially did for many years right here in Tennessee. And one of the individuals that I got to see up close was our former governor, Bill Haslam. And uh, Governor Haslam's new book uh, has just been released and y'all, it is fantastic. Uh, the book is called Faithful Presence, The Promise and the Peril of Faith in the Public Square. And Governor Haslam um, just kind of works through his own experience and the lessons that he learned as a two-term governor in uh, Tennessee. And y'all, I can tell you, it, he was he was one of the most successful governors that we have ever had in this state. Uh, I mean, he led us from the throes of the Great Recession uh, into some just really good times here in Tennessee. And along the way, uh, he had to contend with several things uh, that he had to kind of wrestle with his faith and his uh, convictions as an evangelical uh, in making some of those decisions. And so it says this in the description of the book, faithful presence calls for a different way 
Drawing upon his years of public service, Haslam casts a remarkable vision for the redemptive role of faith in politics while examining some of the most complex issues of our time, including partisanship in our divided era, the most essential character trait for a public servant, how we cannot escape, quote, legislating morality, the answer to perpetual outrage, and finally, how to think about the separation of church and state. And I I cannot recommend this book more than possible uh, to, to our audience. Governor Haslam is a faithful believer. He has deep, abiding convictions. Uh, and, and he was uh, an incredible leader in the, in the public square. And, uh, so yeah, I think, I think a lot of our folks, if, if you, if you have an affinity, uh, towards our work at the RLC, uh, I think you will really enjoy, uh, what Governor Haslam has here. I got to tell you, that's one that's on my list. It's a book I'm really, really looking forward to. And man, Bill Haslam is one of those people that when you meet him in real life, he holds up. He does not disappoint. He's a man of character and conviction. He was an incredibly able leader uh, for the state of Tennessee. And yeah, he's somebody that I that I look up to a lot. He welcomed us uh, into his office for a brief meeting with our interns. And I will agree with you, Josh. You meet him in person and you can tell that he is indeed the real deal. Genuinely cares about people and is interested in them, interested in their well-being, and cared for the best interests of Tennesseans. Well, look, I can't let us uh, end this podcast or get out of here without also uh, mentioning the John Cena event from this week where John Cena was forced to apologize uh, to in Chinese uh, for saying that Taiwan was a country. It just, you know, in our conversations about uh, authoritarian regimes and specifically the Chinese Communist Party in uh, that, that just controls the largest nation on the planet. It was really sad and disgusting to, yeah. s- to see him have to do that. And if we have any... Uh if we have any listeners that actually are a part of the CCP newsflash, uh, Taiwan is a country. That's right, Brent. That's so exactly go. right, Brent. They are a country. Yeah, it's just it was it was a major event from the week, and it was all in support of what is maybe one of my favorite movie franchises, which is The Fast and the Furious, because they have their next movie about to release. And yeah, this is particularly hard for yes, you. Yes, it's just a tough yeah. tough time, honestly. Uh, well, so. I, it's just to to me, it's just well to see him buckle because of let's face it. I mean, because of financial. Yes, because uh, of millions of dollars. Yeah, I, I mean. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, so, it's so disheartening. And so yeah, I'll, I'll leave us on a positive note with saying one of my life mottos, do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Well, that's going to do it for the show today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, we just absolutely enjoy hanging out with each other and with you each and every week to talk about uh, what's going on in our world at the URLC and in the world uh, that we all live in together. If you like the show and want to help us spread the word, please consider going to your podcast app and leaving us a rating or review. Uh, We do read all the reviews and find them quite entertaining, especially the nice ones. And we just want to say thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back next week with more content. Mm -hmm.